If you're with us for the first time, know that we're glad you're here. We, we value every single person that comes through our door. We're going to jump right in today. Uh, last week, we, we saw how Jesus took a few ingredients for a fish sandwich and fed 5,000 people in Mark chapter 6. Uh, and this week, I was a little tempted <laughs> to walk on stage to the Ghostbusters theme song. Um, you can thank me later for not doing that. But this summer, uh, I was doing my fatherly duties of acculturating my kids to the 80s and 90s uh, with Ghostbusters, uh, and it quickly became the family favorite. You know, I watched two worlds kind of collide as they would uh, ask Alexa to play Ghostbusters on repeat. And I bring that up because it's a great theme song. It's a it's a subpar show, um, but it's a great theme song. Uh, and then secondly, because this week ghosts are in our story. There's not actually ghosts, uh, but they they thought they thought they saw a ghost. And I just imagine. As the disciples, I just imagine the disciples singing the famous lyrics. If there's something strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. If there's something weird and it don't look good, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. I love it. I love the energy here. In our passage today, uh, we see that the disciples were in a boat and they saw something strange and weird and they thought it didn't look good. They thought it was a ghost, but as we know from our story today, it wasn't a ghost. It was actually Jesus walking on water. So today's story, it's another frequently told story, and it's often used to remind us to say, hey, do not fear, which is true. It's absolutely true, and we'll we'll see today this story is far more than that, though. It's also, this story is also one of the stories that people love to try and disprove, saying, no, uh, Jesus didn't really walk on water. People often say things like, uh, maybe he was walking on a sandbar. Uh, maybe the disciples, they were hallucinating, or maybe the storm uh, was just really bad, and they, they, thought he was, uh, they thought he was actually walking on, maybe he was actually walking on land beside the water. Uh, they just thought he was walking on water, which, honestly, I find this kind of personally, personally kind of funny when skeptics try to disprove this, because, you know, are all these scenarios possible? Yes, they're very possible. But for one, is this, you know, in the same story in the book of Matthew, we see, you know, this is skipped over. This this is skipped over in the book of Mark. But in Matthew, Peter steps into the water, and then he proceeds to sink where Jesus is standing. So that causes problems for many of these. But then, secondly, it immediately follows where Jesus took five loaves and two fish and fed five thousand people, along with many other miracles that people witnessed. And then, third, you know, they they still need to deal with this thing called the resurrection. Like what happens here? So if you want to try to disprove this one, that's fine. Uh, but many others. There's, there's many others we still have to deal with, like how the world was creation, created in the resurrection. And if, if Jesus created the world and rose from the dead, walking on water, it doesn't seem too difficult. And so as we've continually said, either Jesus was and is God, or Jesus is the greatest con artist of all time. There's really no room for middle ground in this. You can't just be a prophet, a wise teacher, or a nice man. He's either God worthy of our worship, or he's crazy, as C.S. Lewis has often quoted. And so so today, we're continuing to ask the same question, who is this man Jesus? Who is Jesus? As we go through our story, we're going to see that Jesus is the great I am. That's That's our big idea for today. Jesus is the great I am. And that may not make sense to, to some of you, uh, which I say good, 
because we're going we're gonna to find out more of what that actually means today. Our story today is, is also in Mark 6, and it actually directly follows the story from last week. These stories are told in tandem together. Uh, and if you remember from last week, the disciples were tired, they were hungry, they needed some time to rest for ministry. And then a large crowd of 5,000 men come to join them. Jesus looks on them with compassion, takes five loaves and two fish, and feeds 5,000 people. It was possibly 10 to 15,000 people, as we saw last week, if we include both the women and the children. And Jesus was hoping hosting something like a messianic banquet, showing that he was a great shepherd, but more than hosting the banquet, we saw that Jesus is, he came to be the banquet. He is the banquet. And then immediately after that, we get to our passage today. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark 6, starting in verse 45. I'm going to read through this passage. We're going to do a few verses at a time, a little bit like a running commentary. Um, And we're going to make four observations along the way. We're going to have four observations today, but it all runs with this same idea that Jesus is the great I am. So look at verse 45. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethesda, while he dismissed the crowd. So Jesus just finished feeding a massive crowd of people, revealing himself as the Messiah, the kingly Messiah. And then we see this verse, uh, which if... (laughs) It seems a bit odd if we really think about it. Like, why would Jesus not want to stay around all these people, this large crowd of people? It seems like, hey, Jesus needs to strike while the iron's hot. He just fed 5,000 people. He just performed a miracle. Everybody is loving life. Everybody is satisfied. And it seems like Jesus is at the peak of his ministry. And then verse 45 tells him he made his disciples get into the boat and go to the other side. And when you look at the original language of this verse, it's clear that he's somewhat forcing them. Like, this is a forceful action. He's using a lot of energy to get them to leave. He's, he's kind of shooing them away, like, get into the boat. Go, get into the boat. It's kind of like a family trying to get out the door. It's not an easy task. And he was using a lot of energy to do this. And the idea is that he made his disciples leave. He did it against their will. He, and then he dismissed the crowds. You know, and in John's account of this, it's the same, same story in the book of John. It says he perceived they wanted to crown him as king. Everybody loved what he did. They wanted Jesus to be the king, but Jesus knew it wasn't time yet. Jesus knew that a throne awaited him, but the cross would come first. He knew that a throne awaited him, but the cross would come first. Yes, Jesus is the great shepherd, as we saw last week. Yes, Jesus would soon be king, but he would be a different king in a different way. Jesus would be a king that they didn't expect. Jesus knew that, but the crowds and the disciples, they didn't know that. The disciples and the crowds, they thought they should go one way, and God, he had a, he, but God had a completely different plan. He thought it should go a completely different way. And it's clear in this passage that God's way for his disciples was difficult. It was difficult for the disciples. They were ready for Jesus to be king, for Jesus to save the day, to, make, to come and make everything better, but it wasn't time yet. Jesus had a different plan. And as we'll soon see in this story, God's plan didn't keep them in green pastures. God's plan led them into a difficult storm. Everything in our story today, in our story today it goes against the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says, follow Jesus and your life will be better. Follow Jesus and you will be blessed. Follow Jesus and you will multiply your resources. You know, the prosperity gospel, it loves the five loaves and the two fish, seeing God bless his people and multiply their resources. But then it really struggles with this verse because following God didn't lead to their best life now. Following the plans and direction of God made their life now, it made it really hard. Get this. 
Jesus led them away from a miracle and purpose, purposefully, and if we're faithful to, this, to the text, somewhat forcefully puts them in a storm. There's a saying that I hear often, and uh, the safest place to be is in the will of God. Um, well, that's just flat out wrong because the will of God sent Jesus to die on a cross, right? And, and the will of God had led millions of people across thousands of years to be killed and martyred for following Jesus. The safest place to be is not following the will of God. If, the, if following the Lord's guidance led them into a storm, do you know where disobeying God would have led them? A warm house, full stomachs, and a large crowd. However, even though God's will is not always easy and safe, it's still best. It's still best. Jesus is teaching them that it's better to be in the midst of a storm knowing that God is with them than in, than in green pastures with comfort, easy, and safety, apart from God's divine plan. But one of the greatest tragedies of our day is that our culture looks at this and looks at this the exact opposite. Why? Because our, our culture does not understand the glory of God. The only way to know that a storm is better in God's plan than green pastures apart from God's plan is when you've tasted and seen the Lord's goodness. Right? When we've grasped the gospel, our culture has put ease of life, safety, and comfort where only the God of the universe deserves to be placed. And so as we think about this, the first observation we're going to see from our text is this. Number one, the great I am guides our plans. Now, I want to stop here for a second uh, and take a deep dive for a minute and, and explain this phrase, Jesus is the great I am. So hang with me for about five or six minutes. Um, this, this name, the great I am, it comes up later in verse 50. Uh, but I want to go ahead and address it now. So, if you have, so you guys have a better understanding as we kind of go through this, this understanding of Jesus is the great I am. That, the language originally comes... From Exodus chapter 3, when, uh, when God is speaking to Moses through a burning bush. And if you're not a Christian here today, as I explain this, I just let this intrigue you because uh, just about the cohesive nature of the Bible, how the entire Bible ties together. It's one book showing the story of God. It's fascinating how it all works together. And so try to pay attention for just a few minutes. But back in Exodus chapter 3, it's the second book of the Bible, after God creates the world, Thousands of years before Jesus was on earth, there's a man that comes on the scene, and his name's Moses. And God used Moses to deliver his people from the oppression of, of Egypt. You know, God's people, they were in bondage, they were in slavery under Pharaoh, a really bad man. You know, Pharaoh, he's mean, he's a bad man. God's people were groaning, crying out for help. And because God loves his people, God showed up. And he showed up in a powerful way. God comes and God talks to Moses. God comes and talks to Moses through a burning burning bush, um, which logically, this is not, this is not crazy because it's God is over creation. If he wants to speak through a bush, uh, he can speak through a bush. So God spoke through a bush. It was a, it was a miraculous event, much like we see Jesus do. Um, if we see, if we believe that Jesus did what he did really happen, you know, again, this isn't a stretch, but what God says to Moses is what we need to notice for our story today. Okay. God comes to Moses and says, Hey, Moses, I've seen the affliction of my people, I've heard their cries, I know their suffering, and I, and I have come to deliver them. And then God comes and says, I'm going to send you, Moses, I'm going to send you to deliver my people from Egypt, from Pharaoh. And Moses comes back to God and says, who am I that I should go? How am I going to deliver them? And then God says to him, don't worry, I will be with you. And then Moses asks, how, what do I say to confirm to the people that, that it is really God who sent me? Like, how, am I gonna, how are they going to know that it's really God that's sending me? And then God says to him, tell them, I am has sent you. 
And then later God says, speaking of that name, I am, when he's talking about this as the great, God is the great I am, he says, this will be my name forever. This will be my name, how I will be remembered forever. And then God tells Moses, I will do amazing things through you. So Moses, he's fired up. He's ready to go. And then you know what happens? Moses obeyed God. Moses did exactly what he told him to do. And you know what happened? It got really hard. <laughs> In fact, the situation for God's people got worse. Uh, Pharaoh, as we see later after, after this account, Pharaoh got meaner and oppressed much harder. And it didn't go exactly as Moses had thought it would go. And oh yeah, not to mention, then there were 10 plagues that came. Uh, those also happened. So get this, just like the disciples being led by Jesus into a storm, by obeying God, Moses too was led into what we could call a bad storm by obeying God. But then let's not, let's not forget what happens. Right? God comes through and delivered his people by freeing them from Egypt by parting the Red Sea. And this event, God coming through and delivering his people through, out of Egypt, is widely considered to be one of the most miraculous events in the Old Testament. This would, this would be talked about for thousands of years. That would be a continuous encouragement for God's people. And just like God said to Moses in the burning bush, you know, once I deliver this people, when you hear that name, I am, that name reminds God's people that God delivers. That name, I am, reminds his people that God saves, that even in difficult situations, hard situations that God takes us through, we can trust, we can trust that God, that I am, still rescues and delivers. And so coming full circle, if I've lost you for a second, try to check back in here. Uh, when I say the great, the great I am guides our plans, it doesn't mean God's plans will be easy and comfortable. In fact, God's plan may be very difficult, but when the I am guides our plans, he often takes us through difficulty to do the miraculous. God often uses difficult situations to show his glory to, and to grow our affections and trust for him. When we hear that the great I am guides our plans, we're saying that it won't be easy, right? that it's going to be worth it because God's plans are better than our plans. I don't know what you're bringing in here today, but whatever challenge you brought in here today, if you're, if you're in Christ, obeying the Lord, seeking to do his will, and yet you're going through difficulty, we can take heart today because the great I am is guiding you and he can be trusted. He can be trusted. It may not turn out the way we would like it to turn out or the way we'd think it would turn out in this life, but there is an eternity on the other side of this life where every difficulty and challenge and deliverance will be found and answered through the great I am. Let's look at this next verse. And if you're paying attention here, you've noticed I've only covered one verse. I promise the, next, the rest will be faster. Okay, look at verse 40, 46 for our next observation. And then this is what it says. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So Jesus is sending his disciples away into what would be, we would see to be a storm. And Jesus goes on top of the mountain by himself to pray. I know this seems like a pretty obvious observation here, but I think it's worth looking at. And it's number two, the great I am praise, right? Jesus prayed. And something interesting, I bring this up because something interesting about the book of Mark is that, when, is that we only see Jesus getting away to pray three times in the entire book of Mark. And each time he prays, it's signifying a significant moment. 
The first is when Jesus actually began his ministry. The third is when he goes, is right before he goes to the cross. And the second is here. So it just, it, it causes us reason to stop and pause and think about it for a second. And each time he's got a formative decision to make. Each time when he prays, he's really thinking about what's going on. And it's during a time when his disciples are somewhat clueless of what's going on with Jesus. Like, like they're not, like his disciples are not getting it. They're not fully understanding who Jesus is. It's just not clicking for them. And Jesus is not praying merely just to get away by himself. Jesus gets away to pray because he knows that there's a spiritual battle going on. We could say it this way. The disciples wanted to crown him king, but Jesus knew his crown came with a cross. Right? Jesus knew that he would be soon go to the cross, but that's not what the disciples wanted. And Jesus knew that. Anything that would deter Jesus from the cross was evidence of a spiritual war. Jesus saw it, and he went away to pray. Quite possibly to pray for the disciples quite possibly to pray for the crowds and probably for himself, knowing he would soon be, he- be going to the cross. And then look what happens next in verse 48. It says, And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. So Jesus is praying on top of a mountain by himself, looks out, and he sees the disciples struggling. It says, it says they were making headway painfully. The original language here, painfully, uh, could be translated as tormented. You know, the, the basic idea here is that it was, it, was, they were, it was really, really bad. Whatever they were experiencing was really bad. It was, it was not fun. It was just flat out awful. Not only were they struggling, was it painful for them, but it was the fourth watch of the night. It was between, it's often between, the, seemed to be between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Uh, and let me tell you something that my grandmother always told me when I was a teenager. Uh, ain't nothing ever good happen at 3 a.m., right? There's a reason that Waffle House is the only thing that's open at 3 a.m. Because nobody in their right mind goes to Waffle House at a normal time. But I will say they make a mean chocolate chip waffle. Um, so here the disciples are struggling painfully like a typical post-Waffle House experience. And then the most bizarre thing happens. Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And then what's really interesting to me is what it says next. It says he meant to pass by them. Like, what? He meant to pass by them? We have to, we have to stop and think about this. Like, what is Jesus doing? Well, like, was he trying to like sneak by them, you know, like, uh, so they wouldn't see him, hoping they wouldn't see him? Was he trying to play a trick on them? Like he was, he meant to pass by them. Uh, he was, maybe he was going on a midnight stroll across the water. It says he meant to pass by them, or, or maybe he, or, or you could say he wanted to pass by them, so maybe he just got sidetracked uh, and he forgot to pass by them. The disciples think he wanted to pass by them. Uh, maybe that was just, uh, it was their perspective in the moment, I don't know. Uh, but whenever we see something strange like this, we should always stop and think. We should always stop and say, okay, what's happening here? We need to d- dig a little deeper. Because we, when we need to remember that Mark's gospel is unique and that he paints a picture with his words. No other gospel, no other book mentions this of Jesus passing by, but Mark does. Mark is painting a picture showing Jesus revealing God's glory. Because follow me here, we're going to take another deep dive here for a second. Because what's happening here, Mark is showing us that the disciple, what the disciples missed. 
Like he's, he's painting a picture, showing, drawing our attention, showing us what the disciples missed. And, he's, and he's, he's looking back to a few significant Old Testament encounters. And the first is in Exodus 33, uh, verses 20 to 23. And this is an event that most of them should have been aware of. It was when Moses says to God on Mount Sinai, he says, let me see your glory. And then God says back to him, it should be up here on the screen. He says, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place... Here is a place near me. You're to stand on the rock, and here it is. It says, when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my name until I have passed by it. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. So, so here we see God's glory. It passes by Moses. So God's glory is passing by Moses. And that, that language is significant here. And we also see that same, that same language come up in 1 Kings 19. Uh, there's a story with Elijah and God. Uh, we're not going to go into the entire story. But during, during a great windstorm, something similar we see, the Lord passes by Elijah showing the glory of God, as we see in that passage in 1 Kings 19. Go back and look at, at it later. And then in, in, in Job 9, in Job 9.11 specifically, who, if you remember the story of Job, Job, he also experienced great difficulty. He speaks of the trampling of the waves of the sea while also seeing God's marvelous works. And then, in Job, then Job says in verse 11, behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. You see, Jesus wanted to pass by his disciples he meant to pass by his disciples so that like Moses and like Elijah and like Job, they would see Jesus's, they would see God's glory in Jesus. That's what he was trying to portray. So that they would perceive him, so they would see God as the great I am. So they would see as our third observation that number three, the great I am covers and protects. As it says in Exodus 33, when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Right? When Jesus was passing by them, it was meant to be a sign of comfort. It was meant to be the Lord's protection and covering, showing him, seeing God's hand over their situation. Just like, but just like Job said, he passed by, but they missed it. They did not perceive him. That's not how they viewed his passing by. Look what happens in verse 49. Like it was supposed to be covering and protection, but that's not what happened. It says in verse 49, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. They didn't perceive Jesus walking by them as God's glory. You know, the, God provides protection and covering. They perceived him as a ghost and they were terrified. So I want to stop here for a second because uh, and address the person in the room who's not yet put their faith in Jesus. When we see what's happening in the story, the reality is all of us are just like the disciples in the boat. We're in the boat painfully struggling. I'm not talking about typical highs and lows like th that every, every person experiences. I'm talking about something much deeper than that. I'm talking about the painful spiritual struggle that is caused by the sin of the world, that's caused by the sin in our life. Because as of what the Bible says is true, because of the sin in our life, each of us are striving, painfully striving in the boat without a paddle. Because here's the truth. God created us to be with him. God created us to know him, to metaphorically speaking, to be with God in the boat. But the problem is, without Jesus in our boat, without trusting in Jesus, our striving is hindered by the sin in our life. Even worse, 
Even worse than the disciples struggling in their boat, we will never make it to God because of the sin in our boat, the sin in our life. To be more accurate, because of our sin, we're not trying to row upstream without a boat. We're on, our sin leaves us dead in the bottom of the sea. But the beauty of the gospel is that God sees us painfully struggling in our sin, seeing that the sin in our life is hindering us, keeping us from God, but yet God sends Jesus in his kindness to us in our struggle. Jesus struggled and died on the cross to take our struggle, our sin struggle, upon himself. Listen, if you're not a Christian here today, listen, Jesus has passed before you. Jesus has revealed his glory to us in the gospel, and the gospel is clear. Jesus has done everything necessary to save you. Jesus went to the cross so that he could pass by your sins so that we would no longer painfully struggle for eternity because of them. If you're not a Christian, the gospel of Jesus has passed before. You must decide today if you're going to let Jesus into your boat. Are you going to let Jesus come into your life? Don't miss the opportunity that's been put in front of you. Brother and sister, let Jesus in the boat. When you let him in the boat, when you let Jesus into your life, when you trust in Jesus, make him Lord of your life, look what happens. Look what happens in verse 50 and 51. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. Now I want to be clear here on what I'm not saying. I'm not saying the storms of your life will cease when Jesus comes into your life because that's just not true. But what I am saying is that Jesus takes upon himself the storm of our sins so we can no longer have to fear sin and death. When Jesus passes before us, when we trust in Jesus, like we saw earlier in Exodus 33, God says in Exodus 33, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. In the gospel, because of the cross, Jesus puts us in the crevice of the rock, covers us with his hand, and protects us from the wages of our sin. Jesus is our daily covering and protection. Jesus is our daily covering and protection from the consequences of our sin, the consequences of death. That's the gospel. Jesus has passed before us with the gospel. Jesus reveals to us his glory in the gospel, and Jesus provides protection from the storm of sin through the gospel. Jesus does this because he is the great I am. The great I am that showed up to God in the, in the burning bush that led Israel through great difficulty of hard labor, oppression, and plagues, but yet when Jesus declares himself as the great I am, when Jesus says, as we just re read, take heart, it is I, which by the way, uh, it is I here is translated I am. It's better translated that way. It's translated it is I just because it makes more sense in the English language, but it misses the entire Old Testament connotation. connotation. But when Jesus says, take heart, it is I, or, or take heart, I am, do not be afraid. He's making a declaration to the disciples, telling them to fear not. Because the great I am is here. Mark is painting a picture showing that the same God that saved the people of Israel from the oppression of Egypt, that delivered God's people from the bondage of slavery under wicked Pharaoh, that same God that protected his people from the plagues that destroyed Pharaoh's land, that same God in the midst of their storm, he comes in and says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, I am is here. Which for us today should give us great hope in our struggles. Because just like the great I am met Israel in their fears and struggles, just like Jesus entered into the disciples' fears and struggle, our next observation is number four. The great I am enters into our fears and struggles. I don't know what you've brought in here tonight, what fears and struggles you may have. Maybe you have an ongoing sin struggle. 
Maybe you feel like the disciples, like you're making headway painfully. You're striving and trying hard, but you're not getting anywhere. I can confidently say to you tonight, as our scripture says, take heart, the great I am is with you. The same God that parted the Red Sea and freed Israel from the bondage of slavery. If you are in Christ, the same God is in your boat and you are free from the bondage of your sin. Don't quit fighting. Don't give up because God's glory is on the other side. Maybe you're here tonight and you're fearful. Maybe you're fearful of the outcome of a class or a looming financial situation. Maybe you're fearful of a conversation you need to have with someone. Or maybe you're fearful of a family situation. I don't know what it may be, but I can say to you tonight, Jesus, the great I am says to you, take heart. I am is with you. The great I am has taken you. He's taken your situation, as Exodus 33 says, and he has put you in the crevice of the rock and covers you with his hand until it passes by. And as we've continually seen today, it may not go as planned, but you can trust that it's in the hands of the great I am. God may bring deliverance soon, or it may be in the next world. But take heart, the great I am brings covering and protection, and the great I am delivers. And as you can see in this story, although we, although we go through struggles, Jesus comes to us in the struggle, and when he comes, he comes seeking to show both his power and his glory. When we walk through struggles, we're walking through opportunities to see God's power be put on display. Because when the great I am enters a struggle, his glory is on the other side. Whatever you're walking through, whatever struggle you're experiencing, whatever hard thing God has called you to, I want to call you to not run from it, but lean into it and see how God's power and glory in this situation is being put on display. Because as we've seen, something miraculous may be on the other side. Maybe it's healing. Maybe it's salvation. Maybe it's a deeper love for Jesus. Or maybe it's just showing the world that Jesus can sustain us in our storms. But whatever it is, we can be confident that God's glory will be put on display because Jesus is the great I am. Let's keep going through this. Look at, look at verse 51. Once they noticed it was Jesus walking on water, right? After, they, after he got into the boat, after the wind ceased, it says they were utterly astounded. Utterly astounded here is not like, oh, that was pretty cool. Um, although it was, was pretty cool. Uh, utterly astounded is like extra, extra astounded. So just think of astounded. Like that's what he's trying. We have to build off of astounded first. So astounded would be like making a half court shot, blindfolded, someone spinning you around and then making it uh, to win a, mil- a million dollars. You'd be freaking out going crazy, right? The, the crowd would be going crazy. That's astounded. So utterly astounded, the emphasis that they're trying to get here, what Mark is trying to get across, the emphasis will be similar to someone doing the exact same, th- same thing and then that person flapping their wings and just flying out of the arena. You would be utterly astounded. Right? You'd be freaking out, but in a completely different way. And that's how the disciples feel in this moment. They just witnessed Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. They witnessed Jesus walking on water, calmed, calming the wind, and getting into the boat with them, and then they were utterly astounded. And if you're following along in the book of Mark, you would think that this would lead them to worship. But interestingly enough, which to me is the most interesting part of the entire story, they were not led to worship like you would think. Look what it says in verse 52. This is just bizarre to me, okay? Verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This just baffles me. To be candid with you, when I first read this earlier this week, I read it, sat back and thought, what in the world is wrong with the disciples? 
Like they, they have visibly seen with their eyes miracle after miracle after miracle. And then it says, they were confused about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. And part of me thinks, what else do they need to believe? But let's just think about this. In the last eight or nine minutes of our time, up to this point, if you go back and look through the chapters preceding this story in Mark, you'll see that the disciples knew Jesus can cast out demons, Jesus could heal the sick and perform perform miracles. But it was much like the prophets in the Old Testament could do. We don't know what each one truly believed Jesus at this time. Like we, we don't, but we do know is that it says their hearts were hardened. And while they were also utterly astounded by them, like they were in shock, they were amazed by him and all of him. So some have said uh, they, they didn't have faith because their hearts were hardened. Like, and they've tied it to not having saving faith. Uh, that they didn't believe Jesus was God. And, and maybe that was true. But to be honest with you, I have, I have personally wrestled with this all week long. Um, And I'm not convinced that they didn't have faith that Jesus was God. Maybe some did, maybe they didn't. Uh, We do know from the book of John, they tried to crown him as their kingly Messiah. We we also know that they've been preaching about repentance and forgiveness of sin. And we saw earlier in chapter two that they were amazed and they were glorifying God when they saw that Jesus has the power to forgive sin. And to be honest with you, I don't think it's right to say they didn't have faith. I think we could faithfully say that they had maybe had a gap in their faith that led to their hardness of heart. But regardless of whether they had faith or not, what we do know from this passage is that you can follow Jesus like the disciples. You can be in awe of Jesus like the disciples, and you can even know a lot about Jesus like the disciples, and your heart can still be hardened. You can can go read the Bible. You can be in church. You can be at all the conferences. You can be amazed by the works of Jesus around the world and even tell others about Jesus, and yet we can still have a hard heart. And in this story, the disciples, they were amazed by him and all of him. They were learning about him, following him, but their hearts were hardened. And we don't know this for sure, but I just imagine, I just just kind of reading into the situation, quite possibly, maybe they were just a little mad at Jesus for shooing them away from the large crown. They were ready for Jesus to be king. And I bet that they were probably frustrated at Jesus for leading them into a storm. They were possibly thinking with hard hearts, Maybe Jesus is not who we thought he was, quite possibly. I don't know. But to say it another way, I think we could say it this way. At this point, we could say they wanted to follow Jesus as their genie, but not as their suffering servant. They wanted Jesus to make their lives better, to be the kingly Messiah that saves them from their sin, that lies them down in green pastures, but they wanted it to come without struggle and without sacrifice. And this is why the story is such a pivotal moment, because what Jesus was calling his disciples to do was far more than having full stomachs and green pastures. Jesus was teaching his disciples that following Jesus was not would not be easy, that there would be a struggle, and that it would require a great sacrifice. Jesus was showing his disciples that just like when Moses followed God, It led him into further oppression in Egypt and then into 10 plagues. But then yet, that same struggle resulted in being one of God's most talked about displays of glory in the Old Testament. And as we've seen, following Christ into the struggle leads us to seeing God's greater glory when he delivers us out of the struggle. And as we'll see as we go through Mark, Jesus didn't come to to be a miracle-working genie. Jesus came to be the suffering servant that would struggle and suffer and die on a cross to save the world so that his full power and glory could be displayed because Jesus' struggle on the cross led to the greatest display of God's glory shown to man. And we could say it another way, following the great I am 
doesn't always come with full stomachs and green pastures. Following the great I am comes with the bloody cross. And so as we close out our time here tonight, I want to I want to call us to reflect on Jesus as the great I am. If you're a Christian here tonight, I want you to find comfort in knowing that the great I am guides our plans. That the great I am prays. He's praying for you. He's praying for us. He's fighting a spiritual battle at all times on our behalf. And I want you, I want you to know that the great I am covers and protects. And that the great I am enters into our fears and struggles. And what a great joy and comfort it is to know that the great I am is with us. To know that even, that even in our gaps of faith, the great I am each day comes to us in our boat and says to us, fear not, <laughs> I am with you. Fear not, I am is with you. Because as we've seen, when the great I am leads us into the struggle, we can find comfort in knowing his glory will be shown on the other side of the struggle. And then finally, if you're not a Christian here tonight, I want to remind you that the glory of Jesus has passed before you in the gospel. Jesus is calling on you. Jesus wants to get in your boat. Let tonight be the night that you put your faith in Jesus the great I am, because he wants to show you his full glory and greatness on the other side. And as we've seen, it may not be easy, but it's worth it. Our faith in Jesus is far greater than any of Jesus's earthly miracles. Faith in Jesus in a person's life is the greatest miracle. It's miraculous. I pray that, that you would trust in Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, we... We pray that we would be marveled, that we would marvel at your works, that we would marvel at what you have done for us at the cross, that we would marvel that you came and you got into our boat, even when we have gaps of faith. Father, even in our weakness, even in our sin, Father, you still came before us. Father, I pray that we would uh, be amazed by your works and that we would step out in boldness and faith. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.